Hello, I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence. I'd like to welcome you to Portcullis House and to this evening's event. Two things uh, qualify this as an internet and politics event. The first being, of course, that it's at Portcullis House. And the second is that the event is podcast. So everything that the speakers say tonight and indeed that you say as the audience will be recorded for posterity, and we will, of course, see how many clicks you all get. I'm going to hand over to Derek to introduce the panel in a minute. I just would like to thank the partners on this event, the Times, and in particular Times Online and Comment Central, which is very much uh, Danny Finkelstein's domain, Sky News, the last event we did with Sky News, Adam chaired for us, also an event on politics, unsurprisingly, and also Hansard Society represented tonight by their director of e-commerce. A very, very brief plug for editorial intelligence, not least because we are now calling ourselves the portal to the commentariat, which is, I think you will agree, a rather internet-friendly term. And briefly, one of the things we do is put events like this together with the aim of, well, frankly, bringing you a party conference without having to actually go to party conference, which is always a nice thing to do, but also to bring the spirit of bringing a, a live issue to you seen through the lens of the policy makers, the business leaders, the opinion formers and the commentariat. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to Derek Wyatt, who is hosting this event in his capacity not only as the MP for Sittingbourne and Sheppey, but very critically today, really, sort of, he celebrates 10 years as the chair of the all-party parliamentary group on the internet. And this is a role he's really made his own. It is not for nothing that he's here in that capacity. He really has done probably more than any other MP to not just raise the profile of the internet and politics, but to engage directly with it. And so on that note, I'm going to hand over to Derek to take you through proceedings. Thank you for coming. Well, hi, everyone. The, the question we're going to look at for the next 90 minutes or so is how will the Internet change politics? And it's a pretty good question to have a bash at um, because three things have happened already in... Uh, and here we are on, what, March the 29th or something. Uh, Segalin Royale uh, has a Second Life site that's um, had about 200,000 hits. And that takes some understanding, really. Uh, and she has 45 people in her IT group doing that site and other sites too. So that's, that's brand new politics. No one's done that before. Uh, secondly, uh, when Hillary Clinton decided that she was going to at least try to seek the nomination, she didn't throw it on Fox. She didn't do it on Fox or Disney or ABC or NBC or anything. She did it on her own website. That's very, that's very interesting too. And when Barack Obama a week later, then decided he'd also launch. He did it on Second Life, and he got a million hits that weekend. Sorry, did I say Second Life? I meant Facebook. Sorry. He did it on Facebook. And a million hits in a weekend is a million more than you normally get, I can tell you. And they are engaging in a very different way, in a different scale in the political life through what their message is going out and how their message is going out very differently. And I think the most interesting thing for UK that we'll have to ponder is, if that is the approach we're going to have in 2009, how will you stop advertising on the net for political parties? And I leave you with that thought, because um, the legislation doesn't cover the internet. Now, we have a stunning panel. 
they can only speak for five minutes, otherwise they'll get their hands cut off by the chairman. And I'm going to introduce them when they come to speak. The first speaker is Dennis Woodside, who's managing director of a small company called Google. And uh, he runs United Kingdom, Benelux and Ireland. He's been associated with uh, Google since December 2003. This is probably the fastest moving media company in the world. And we're thrilled, Dennis, you're here. And we look forward to what you have to say. Thank you. Derek, I think one of the things that was most shocking about what you said was that uh, Segaline Morale has 45 people in her IT department. I wonder if that's a cultural thing or, or something, but I won't comment on that. Um, the question that you asked is, how will the Internet change politics? Our view is that the Internet already has changed politics and really around the world. Let me give you three examples. Um, in South Korea, there's a website called Oh My News that was started by a Korean who was frustrated about the established media not reporting on issues that he felt were important. So he created a site, he let anybody come in and publish whatever they want, um, and um, they picked up a story about two schoolgirls who were crushed to death by an American uh, armored vehicle carrier, and that the popular or the, the established press was not willing to, to uh, report on. Um, Oh My News found out that there was a cover-up and published the cover-up, and it changed the course of the election. The incumbent uh, uh, party was, was thrown out of office. Um, in the United States, you may have heard of the Senate race in Virginia. Um, you could argue that the course of American politics and, and has been changed by, by the Internet. Um, the Democrats basically control the Senate now because they lost, uh, well, they lost many seats, but they lo the uh, Republicans lost uh, Virginia. Uh, why did they lose Virginia? Well, there's an uh, incumbent uh, Republican uh, named George Allen who uh, was recorded at a public event uh, calling someone a macaca, a racial slur. And that was recorded. It was put on YouTube, viewed by hundreds of thousands of people. The mainstream press picked it up, and he lost his seat by a couple thousand votes. This is a man who was named as a presidential candidate. Um, closer to the UK, in the Netherlands, there's a site called Hives. I don't know if anybody speaks Dutch, but if you do, there's a good chance you're a member of Hives. There's, um, uh, it started about 24 months ago, and there's now 3 million registered users, and the prime minister is a hiver, they call him, uh, and he has 50,000 friends. So what does that allow him to do? That allows him to communicate with 50,000 people who are interested in his politics and his, his policies in an effortless way, at no cost at all. So just three examples of showing how the Internet's already changing our world. Um, so what's making this possible? Not to get too geeky on you, but there's some important technological trends that are driving all this. The first is access really is ubiquitous. There's a billion people online. They all can talk to one another. That's something that's profound and really most people don't understand how that's going to play out and what the implications are for, for society. Um, the cost of producing content has fallen to near zero. Probably most of you have mobile phones with a digital camera. Uh, and that camera came with the phone for free. You didn't really think about buying it. You can produce content with that. When the cost of something goes down to nothing, people produce more. Um, and the third is that the cost of storing content has fallen to near zero. Um, you know, we give away these little USB cards that you may have seen that hold a gigabyte worth of data. Uh, Ten years ago, a gigabyte storage for a gigabyte worth of data would have cost you uh, about 500 pounds. And now we give these things away. So what does all this mean for, for politics? Uh, the first is that we think... The internet makes freedom of expression possible for, for everybody. You know, there's this old saying that uh, freedom of the press is great if you own one. Well, now everybody, everybody owns one. Anybody can publish. You can publish blogs. You can publish video. 
you know, go back to those 50,000 friends of the Dutch prime minister. They can tell him exactly what they think. Um, go to Poland. So I used to run our, our business in the emerging markets of, of Europe. And in Poland, there's, uh, there's something like 10 million people online. And those are people who didn't have a voice 20 years ago and couldn't read anything other than what their government prescribed for them. So if you believe that free, people having a voice and having freedom to say what they think is good, then this is really a good time for history. Um, second, second thing is the Internet really enables greater political engagement in the long tail of ideas. And this is something that, you know, that you've written about. Um, I don't know about how many people have written um, or read Chris Anderson's book about the long tail, but the whole idea is that as the costs of engagement fall, uh, smaller businesses can find a global audience. And that's true with ideas. So ideas that might be focused on um, uh, more issues uh, or might be global in scope can find an audience and people can communicate around them. Two examples, you know, cycling in England. People are fanatics about cycling in England or, and in London. And if you think about in the past, how did they communicate or get together? They had to sit down in a room and, or maybe publish a newsletter, which was expensive. Now they can do all that on the Internet. Uh, think about uh, political activism. There's a, a site called Witness that's, that Peter Gabriel has uh, funded that allows anybody around the world to film human rights abuses, upload them to Witness. Witness gets them to the law enforcement uh, authorities, and they put people in jail. And they put people in jail in the Democratic Republic of Congo and India and so forth. So these are pretty profound changes. And then the last thing is um, uh, the Internet really enables better collective decisions or judgments through what we call, or what's known as, the wisdom of crowds. So what's the wisdom of crowds? Well, the whole idea goes back to a, a sociologist um, in England in the 19th century who, uh, who asked a crowd to weigh a cow. And they said to the cat, you know, crowd, weigh the cow, tell us what, how much that cow weighs. And then they had two cow weighing specialists of some sort estimate how much the cow weighs. And it turns out that the, the crowd uh, is, the, is the better judgment of the, of the cow's weight. They get the, the, the cow to within a pound uh, every time. And the reason is that everybody has an independent viewpoint, and it might be wildly different, but that the collective is greater than the sum of the whole. It's the marketplace of ideas, which, which many of you are familiar with. So obviously, you know, just to conclude, I'm very bullish on the Internet. I wouldn't work at Google if I weren't. Um, the Internet's breaking down barriers to knowledge, and which we think is a good thing. Um, it does raise questions. Just to leave you with that, I'm sure we'll explore some of these. It's a little, you know, the Internet is a little bit like a child. Um, it's pushing the boundaries of society, of media, of law, and we don't really know where it's all going to go. Some people would choose to regulate the child. I have a, a six-year-old, and, and sometimes I want to just you know, tell them what to do. But in the long run, that's not the approach that, that is, is best. And we really believe that um, allowing this, more people to get online and to share their viewpoints is, is likely to lead to a better society. So thank you. Really excited to be here. Thank you very much, Dennis. Our next speaker is Baroness Neuberger. She became a rabbi in 1977 and served the South London Liberal Synagogue for 12 years. More recently, she was a life peer in June 2004, a Liberal Democrat. She's just returned from Harvard University, where she's been the Bloomberg Professor of Divinity. Wow. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, and perhaps I ought to confess to having my own kind of blog page, uh, because I'm a contributor to... 
a very extraordinarily high number of hits. A website called On Faith, which is run by the Washington Post and Newsweek, and has various religious and not so religious, and about as liberal as you can be without falling off the edge like me, people contributing, answering a weekly question. And sometimes you look at the question and say, I don't understand the question. I certainly can't come up with the answer. But huge numbers of responses, one of the things that I don't think I had really taken on board. But I want to put a slightly different argument. I was absolutely delighted to be asked to do this. I was talking to Tim Clement-Jones as we were walking across and saying one of the things I really like about doing something like this is it makes me focus on something other than the health portfolio, which is what I do mostly for the Lib Dems in the Lords, and it just makes me think differently. I use the internet all the time. I have the BBC uh, on my screen, so on half of my screen as much of the time as I can manage it. Uh, I'm emailing the whole time. Like most people in this room, I'm probably emailing for an hour or two hours a day. That's just the way our lives have gone. But I want to draw a distinction between all of this as a tool and actually about it as a content. And I think there's something quite important for us to, to grasp onto. What I think the, the internet has done brilliantly, and Google, I have to say my best friend, Google more brilliantly than anything else, is allowed everybody access to information. Some of that information is good, some of it's bad, some of it's indifferent. But we all get access to it. And if we don't like what we get in, way of, in the way of information, you can mostly, not always, but you can mostly actually type in your response. You can actually say, this is a load of old rubbish. So it has changed the way that ordinary people can access information. It's changed the way, therefore, they can marshal arguments. And it has made a huge difference, I think, between what I would call a political elite and the rest of the population. I think that's hugely important. It's also changed the way we campaign. Whether we like it or not, a huge amount of campaigning, particularly single-issue campaigning, is done by email. And I'd like to include here, which is a slightly off the subject, it's all right, but I think text messaging is really important here as well. And I don't know about anybody else in this room, and you know, it is the last day of term, and many peers and certainly many MPs have hightailed it out of the building, but we have all had emails so numerous I gave up counting and simply deleted them on tail docking. I don't think I'd ever really thought about tail docking before, and I'm not sure I wanted to spend a great deal of my time thinking about it again, but it gave me a clue to two things. One is, there are an awful lot of people out there who do mind about tail docking. It may not be my bag, but I could be argued to be part of the political elite, but it's certainly theirs. But the second is, with email, you can run a campaign in a completely different way from any way you were ever able to do it before, and leaflets have had their day. We've all had our parliamentary email completely blocked by emails about tail docking, sexual orientation regulations. If you want to see emails, talk about sex. Sex gets everything. I, I, mean, I am very, very tolerant. As I said, I'm as liberal religiously as you can be without falling off the edge. I have felt quite anti-Christian, anti-Muslim and anti-Jewish in the last couple of weeks. I mean, I'm not supposed to feel anti-Semitic, but I have with some of the emails that I've had from the religious right of all different denominations who can, of course, get straight at me. No difficulty. They don't have to put it in an envelope. They don't have to rely on either me or somebody else opening it. It's there. I can delete it, but until I know what it is, I'm not likely to. So it's changed the way people campaign and on single issues, tail docking, sexual orientation, Darfur, very importantly, 
Make poverty history. It wouldn't have been the size it was if it hadn't all been done by email and text message. And all sorts of people who've never been on a demonstration before were at Make Poverty History two years ago. It has changed the way we do things. In a funny kind of way, the rough and tumble of Westminster life hasn't been altered that much by it. We still sit in this very odd way. It's still adversarial politics. And we still are modelled in a 19th century way. And that's why Trollope is so popular, because actually it hasn't changed a lot. But it's fine. But... And we have very, very poor involvement at local level because the great talent of 19th century politics was local politics and the great municipal pride, and we've lost a lot of that. So what has the internet done? It's got rid of the importance of face-to-face on the doorstep. It's got rid of leafleting. It's got rid of... Well, it hasn't got rid of leafleting, but it's made it pointless. It's got rid of even quite a lot of the phone calls. But it has made people focus on the single issues. But in all of this, it's been a tool. People have got information and they've got lobbied. What they haven't had is face-to-face engagement. And I think something very interesting is happening. I did this week's debate, the God debate, for Intelligence Squared. They moved from the Royal Geographical Society to Central Hall. They had a waiting list of 1,000 people wanting to come and they had 2,900 people there. People are thirsting for head-to-head real engagement. The internet's a tool that informs people. The internet's a tool that allows you to lobby people. But it doesn't help you have a real head-to-head engagement and see the whites of their eyes. And I think we have to recognise that and think that it will change politics in some ways, but the personal engagement is never really going to disappear. Thank you. Well, our next speaker is really Mr. Sky himself. It's, uh, you would think that uh, the Sky News Department has at least 400 people and has endless cars and endless cameras and so on, but actually, I know it's pretty thin. But it's made better because there's one essential heavyweight in all senses of the word, and that is uh, Adam Bolton, our next speaker, who's, who's luckily enough had, you know, he's done Jane Fonda and Woody Allen and Spike Lee, and he's also done Mrs. Thatcher and Tony Blair and so on. But I think when people say, they don't say it's just Mr. Sky, it's just that he is so rigorous and so fair. And you can't always say that about journalists. And so it's, I'm really proud to introduce um, Adam Bolton. Thank you, Derek. An old uh, comrade from the early days of Sky. He was uh, around Sky Computers, believe it or not. Um, now, look what we've got. Our prize for the night is editorial intelligence box of pencils. And we've got one computer on the table which doesn't work. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be a little bit sceptical about all of this because uh, I wouldn't deny that we spend a lot of our lives at Sky, as do other uh, media organisations, worrying about the impact of the internet, trying to work out how we can compete with it and make the best of it. Uh, and it's a wonderful tool. In fact, I once called Google a gift for them from the gods in a rather exuberant moment. Uh, but uh, I think we need to think a little bit carefully about this. Is the internet really uh, changing politics or is it a means by which... Uh, we can pursue politics as we've always pursued it. Um, it seems to me, we all know the internet is a very speedy means of communication, it's a very easy means of communication, and it can uh, refer people to volumes of documentation to which they wouldn't otherwise have access. Uh, but uh, it seems to me that it's not necessarily a mass medium uh, at the present moment, although uh, Juiced may change that, 
uh, in comparison to the radio or the television uh, or indeed to print. It's more a means of communication uh, on a one-on-one basis and uh, while I think we can talk about the long tail, the point about the long tail is that it's a means of catering within the market for a variety of tastes. Uh, every taste gets catered for and you can make money out of it. Don't bother read the book, that's it. He just says it 42,000 times. Uh, and, and in fact, that is not politics. Politics is about mass movements. And the fact that you can have a wide variety or access to a wide variety of opinion, I don't think necessarily uh, changes... Uh, the need uh, to campaign. Indeed, I would go further and say, while you can point to examples in uh, uh, presidential campaigns, the uh, campaign against Joe Lieberman, or indeed uh, to Segalen Royale and uh, whatever it's called, Souvenir de l'Avenir, whatever her site's called, uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, British politics is, as we all know, largely fought at constituency level, and actually hooking up... Uh, by internet is not a particularly efficient way of getting round a constituency which in many cases you can walk round uh, in about half an hour anyway and uh, I don't think we've seen the end of leafleting, I don't think we've seen the end uh, of canvassing on the street. I then go further and actually look at what the internet is currently being used for and basically at the moment uh, the senior politicians are using it to show us their softer side, we've all seen Webb Cameron or Tony Blair uh, being interviewed uh, by um, Jamie Oliver or Stephen Fry. Uh, we've seen Sean Simon doing his impersonation of uh, David Cameron. These are stories fundamentally generated within the internet and they die out uh, on the internet. Uh, I mean, we've had the story of that Tory councillor who sent around the racist poem uh, that it turned out someone had posted not only on Boris Johnson's but my own website. From actually breaking that story to the council being suspended by David Cameron, it took 90 minutes. Uh, that shows how fast the internet can be. Was it really a consequential story? I don't think so. What about the other stories which internet traffic is generating as well? It's just the 21st century uh, version of what used to be uh, the misdirected uh, facts. Uh, and before that, that uh, stalwart of Westminster politics, the uh, document left on the photocopier. Uh, so I don't think it's changing politics. I think it's a factor of how we do politics. Go further, we can look at uh, the people who are blogging, uh, claiming uh, that they're uh, presenting a new sort of information, and uh, we're seeing a lot of circulation between stories on the blogs and stories in the diaries and vice versa. But in fact, Guido Fawkes and Ian Dale and... Conservative Home are simply evolving themselves into online magazines, selling advertising, uh, expressing their views, covering uh, their area uh, of special interest. And I feel uh, at this moment that we need to be very careful about all of this because, okay, brilliant, a billion people are online, five and a half billion aren't. Uh, And in fact, three billion of them don't have access to electricity. So if we're talking about mass political movements, I think we are looking uh, at a fairly uh, minute uh, level. Now, there are uh, attempts to get around that. We know, uh, as a remarkable venture, the Negroponte computer, uh, the $100 computer or less, which is uh, designed for use in the third world and solar-powered, have to say hasn't got really a great deal of support either from most of the media companies, as it happens Murdoch is supporting it, uh, or indeed uh, from governments. And really the big breakthrough, and it's already been said here, 
in terms of enfranchising those who are not enfranchised, including in this country, if we're talking about young people and poorer people, the big breakthrough is the mobile phone. But the level of uh, where, you know, for example, trades are now done uh, between African uh, farmers uh, on mobile phones, they're using it as a currency before we are. But that's a much blunter <laughs> instrument and much less capable to deal with all this information. So. I admire the internet, I worry about it, it certainly puts us on our mettle that we've got to perform, uh, we've got to provide a better service than our amateur competitors in terms of depth, in terms of reliability, and in terms of the effort and resources we devote to getting news. I don't think it's changed the world in terms of the basics of politics. Well, that's very stimulating, Adam, as normal. Ross Ferguson's our next speaker. He has a much tougher job. He works for Hansard and has to direct the e-democracy program. And he's our sort of interface often here. And he's trying to make us, you know, because so many people still don't use email as well or don't have websites here. And he, he's trying to sort of push MPs and peers into the, well, of the 21st century at least. So, Ross. Tonight's a question. How will the internet change politics? Well, if you knew the answer to that, you'd be a very rich and a very politically powerful person indeed. And this much has dawned on our American peers, as uh, some people have already mentioned. Just look at their presidential hopefuls race, stumbling over one another uh, to have people add them to their friends list on MySpace and Facebook. I mean, these aren't even votes, and the primaries aren't till next February. But what the candidates, the reason they're doing this is because today online communities are big, they're diverse, and for that reason they have political clout. And the other reason that they're doing it is because they hope that if each of these people adds them to their friend list, friends list today, then perhaps later on down the line they'll add a few dollars to the campaign coffers as well. The system and style of US politics does seem to be quite suited to the internet and being home to Google, Microsoft and a whole army of internet entrepreneurs. And there's no shortage of guides for politicians and parties um, who want to go online amongst the digital natives. Um, in this country, we do our politics differently, but in terms of internet access, ownership and usage, um, the UK is by no means an internet slouch, and we measure up quite well against our uh, uh, transatlantic neighbours. In areas such as commerce, design education, media, Britain holds its own and in many ways is regarded as a world leader. Um, however, when we compare it to the likes of the UK's online economy and media, it's clear that politics is the slum neighbourhood in UK's online society. And the reason for this, I feel, is that our political institutions and elected representatives have for too long tried to keep the internet out in the cold. It's not a massive surprise because the development of the web has followed uh, a model of development taken by other technologies in a political context, for example, radio and television. It's a four-stage model that they usually take. First comes a period of hyperbole, where people fantasise about the democratic and political potential of the net. Anything is possible, and everything is possible. And this happened in the UK. It was a period, a time of rebellion around about the... 1990s, um, sort of 94, 95, 96, a time of when people were going to rise up as one group of self-confessed internet wonks, uh, defiantly put at the time, 
Technology heralds a funeral cortege of political war horses. RIP the message, RIP the party, RIP politics as a lecture. Heady stuff, that's for sure. And it chilled much of, not all, Derek, much of the political establishment to the bone. And so we entered into the second period, which is the period of resistance, where the incumbents sought to choke off the internet's claim to political credibility. Carrying on down this path, they warned, was a slippery slope to direct democracy, or at the very least, would ruin the quality of political discourse in, in the UK. Basically, they were wasting time, whilst in all other areas of life, Britain was happily getting caught up in the web. So after all the counter-punching and the realisation that nothing was connecting and that politics online is not being stopped, politicians and institutions have decided to change tact and instead they're going to slap a big loving bear hug on the internet. Sink a state no more, UK politics is now being rebranded as a hip and bohemian area to be seen in and indeed it's about to get an institutional makeover. For example, not dissuaded but very much wiser from the petitions experience, Downing Street has been hosting web chats, online forums and is developing a host of other applications to keep in touch with UK's online communities. Um, other government departments are already there and have been quietly engaging the public in ever-increasing numbers in discussions about policy using ICT. Keen not to be caught napping is the UK Parliament. It's now got a dedicated ICT unit and a multi-million pound investment to match. And soon we'll see the Defence Select Committee run an online consultation. It's going to be their second in less than 12 months. And that might not sound much, but believe me, in, in the parliamentary context, that's a real gear shift uh, in the right direction. <laughs> it's all very encouraging, and I definitely think that we should um, praise Parliament and Government for what they've done uh, to date, and, and certainly in, in the last year or so. But they have to remember that they're starting late, and they're having to catch up with us. And they have to realise that in this third phase, the institutional phase, that the game has changed. Points are no longer going to be scored just because you put up a website. The real wins are going to be in the openness, the transparency and the authentic interaction, the real policy changes. They will have to court and convince UK citizens that are committed to the sorts of ongoing engagement enabled by new forms of uh, sedentary and increasingly mobile technology. Because the fourth and the final stage in my model is transformation. The period following the institutionalisation where the technology begins to change the environment in which it operates. Through our research, Hansard Society has already seen that the internet is bringing new people into politics and reconnecting those who have previously tuned out. It's changing the style and format of some of the political discourse, that's for sure. And there are even hints that it's beginning to create new political processes. And the gauntlet needs to be thrown down tonight to Parliament and Government and to our elected representatives is not to be passive recipients of this change, but to actively embrace the web for the benefit of representative democracy. Well, Daniel Finkelstein is our next uh, speaker. He's done more or less everything too. He's the director of the Social Market Foundation. He's currently working on the Times. He stood as a candidate. He's worked for Major and Hague much more you can do on that space and he's also really stimulated in this particular area so Daniel over to you. Well thank you very much uh, Derek it's great to be here to celebrate uh, 
10 years of you being chairman of the House of Commons Committee on the Internet. I was, uh, of course, planning to celebrate quietly at home, but <laughs> <laughs> Julia, uh, Julia persuaded me to turn up here. She can... <laughs> um, I really disagree with you, Adam, uh, and, and I'll explain why with this question. Why do political parties exist at all? Um, Julia Neuberger made a a really interesting point when she brought up the 19th century and how politics has changed between the 19th century and now. And basically, what's changed is the advent of the political party. And the political party's advent came as a creature or a creation of the existence of the mass media. It was created because of limited shelf space. Uh, Because you couldn't get all of the political products in the world onto the shelf. You had to squeeze them into these few newspapers, into these few later television channels. You had to have a centralised political body that could marshal all of the local voices and turn them into a disciplined machine, raise the money to ensure in America that they got advertising or in Britain that they had uh, the spin doctors necessary to appeal on these very limited channels and fill um, the shelf space, the the limited shelf space that was available. And that was the reason for the creation of the political party, the mass political party, in the first place. I think the internet undermines the rationale of the basic organising block of British politics, and that's why I disagree with you. I think that it undermines the rationale of a centralised political party, and that within not-too-distant future, we will find that the existing model of political parties, the centralised model with uh, very strongly whipped members of parliament, with a central line to take, uh, with everybody saying the same thing uh, and everybody be hung out to dry if they disagree with each other and nobody being able to appeal to their local electorates on any other platform, that that centralised model will soon be seen as out of date and that will change politics profoundly. If you abolish shelf space, what happens? And this is another issue on which I uh, disagree with Adam. I thought the long-tail book was very well worth reading all the way through, though you did provide a pithy summary. Um, uh, My wife always believes the world is divided into insights which are obvious and insights which are rubbish. Um, Although my uh, my column's normally falling into the latter category. Um, But uh, clearly there were one or two obvious points that were hit home in that book. But actually as you read it and you um, uh, build up the analysis in it, you can see its profound implications. And in the entertainment world, Limited shelf space led to the dominance of the blockbuster. Um, The few big films, songs, um, books that dominated the market. And those niche products that had very little um, selling possibility, but but existed in huge amounts, simply couldn't fit onto the shelf. And the abolition of shelf space through the internet has led to companies like Amazon making a lot of their money from that vast number of niche products. Now, if you do the same thing in politics you will have the same impact. If you remove uh, this, uh, this shelf space constraint in politics, you will uh, basically allow the long tail of uh, niche products to make much more impact than the blog blockbuster political party does at the moment. You won't necessarily dissolve it altogether, but you will change the relationships um, profoundly. And um, 
So when the shelf goes, um, the central party, shelf space goes, the central party isn't needed for endorsement and it isn't needed for money in anywhere like the same uh, quantity as before. People will be able to appeal to their constituencies, both their virtual constituencies of people who share their interests and their geographical constituency uh, of people who um, might vote for them without necessarily getting the permission of the central party or requiring their organisational skills to communicate um, with local uh, with the local electorate. This will lead to a much bigger uh, um, group of powerful independents. I always thought that Sean Simon video where he imitated um, David Cameron was a very significant. It wasn't so much that, um, that, he was, uh, that he made an international idiot of himself. That was always on the cards. Uh, but it was that he did it for nothing with no one's permission. Um, and, um, you know, it, when I was working for Central Office, it took me millions of pounds to be as stupid as that. Uh, I did manage it, but it required a lot of money from someone else. Um, so, if you take all these things, um, you know, conservative home developing as a magazine, Adam, you're quite right. But that was a creation of Tim Montgomery's with a very strong political view, having an impact on the Conservative Party on very uh, specific issues, for example, the method of electing the leader or selecting candidates, and um, created a, a virtual audience created by him with the permission of nobody and giving him much more power than in his previous position, which was as advisor to the leader of the party uh, in, in a role in which, uh, you know, managed to last three weeks. And, and um, so as, but on the internet, he's had more power. Um, so I think that uh, we're leading to an issue, an era of less centralised political power. And one final point, when I gave this talk to a group of Conservative MPs and peers, Douglas Hurd said it, it will make it much harder to govern. And I, and I said, it will. Um, and the fact that you regard it as undesirable, which I understand, doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Uh, it may be that the era in which this country was easily governable through one or two layers of power, uh, very much unmediated by the electorate or by any other uh, veto player who was able to say no, um, that era may be disappearing and we may be into an era where British politics is very hard to shift. Well that's uh, five different views. Now, we've got a microphone here I think, or two. People want to, to speak. There's a young man at the back I happen to recognise. His hand is up. I'm Peter Bottomley, Member of Parliament for Worthing West. All this is fascinating. I'd love to know who is actually going to do a study for the next general election comparing matched pairs of MPs, whether in the same party or in different ones. But it wouldn't take very long to set up. The ones who are very e-literate, the ones who have 30,000 of their constituents on email who get monthly newsletters, and compare that with the person who doesn't. My guess is you might get the same kind of apparently anomalous results where Tony Wright of Great Yarmouth had a leaflet in the last week that roughly had 30 third-party endorsements saying a nurse says, I think Tony Wright's marvellous, which outweighed the £100,000 which had been spent in constant campaigning against his party and against him in the two or three previous years. But all I'm really saying is that all this can be monitored and pretty good results can be predicted and then found and challenged if necessary afterwards. So for all the people who are here, I suggest one or two of you actually start working out whether that can be done. A second thing, this goes back to anecdotage. In 1992, when I was the MP and got re-elected in Eltham in south-east London, in the strongest wards against me, the turnout was 42%. 
In the strongest wards or polling districts formerly, the turnout was 92%. And the real difference was a philosopher I borrowed for three weeks who spent 12 hours a day delivering in the areas that were basically against me, putting in demotivating leaflets which were written overnight, run off on a Ronio, and just delivered very quietly. No one noticed, and had dramatic effect. I suspect that the effective use of the internet by an MP or a candidate can make some difference sometimes, but it's possible to monitor how this works. Last thing I would say is it's possible for the internet to be used by a campaign group very, very effectively. If you take the doctors in training, chaos at the moment, absolute incredible chaos. The mumsformedics.org are the people who basically got the, the people on the streets, and yet the national media with the exception of, I think, one thing on the Today programme, quite a lot on the Daily Telegraph, have not covered the issue in a way that actually looks at the, the 40% of the talented doctors who got no interviews. And in simple terms, you got a first and did really well with clinical reviews, didn't get the interview. If you hadn't got the first, hadn't got good reviews, you got the interviews. And yet the popular knowledge of this is virtually nil, and the real pressure on the government has not been very great as well, because you have to have this intermediation, which is the one thing which I hadn't, think we haven't yet heard as much as we might about. People are going to either ask questions, I think, and speak, or both. (laughs) If you want to ask a question, that's easier for the panel. My name's Nico MacDonald. To Danny, um, interested in your analysis of 19th century parties, I think the reason you can't have big parties today is there's no big ideas, not because there's a marketplace uh, which uh, has unlimited shelf space. Now, the general feeling from the panel seems to be that technology has changed society. Uh, Adam, I thought, stood against that. Uh, to an extent by saying politics hadn't changed particularly. I'd go the other way and say we need to look at the way that politics has changed technology and maybe the rise of the internet is a product of the disenfranchisement, disillusionment, lack of big ideas uh, and general disengagement of British pu- British, the British public. Now I'm not saying that's the only way it goes but the view that technology changes society is actually a profoundly um, depressing view because it means there's no human agency, it means we don't make a difference, it means everything... Uh, exogenous to humans makes a difference and that is a common view in politics and it's partly I think what has actually demotivated ordinary people is the view that you know you cannot change history, you cannot change society. So I think we need to look at this in a more nuanced way as being actually society is changing and promoting technologies that it sees fit sadly uh, you know they're technologies that are kind of about disenfranchising people or at least um, you know making us very individualised a question to the panel, I mean you can disagree with that, I'm sure people will, but you know, we have all this fabulous technology, Google you know, I don't need to give them any more praise than they've had already where are the really big ideas or political concepts which have come out of this in the way that perhaps associated with the rise of the printing press or the mass media, we had profound new ideas whether it was Mill or Locke or these kind of things, I mean do we feel that the quality of ideas coming out of a political class matches the possibilities the technology uh, is delivering to us. Well, I've got two people here screaming. Julia. Can I just come back and say, I mean, while I, I accept that, you know, maybe it's the cause, the lack of big ideas is why, why people are not motivated by politics. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I, I mean, I do actually believe the technology is a tool, and I don't think it's that the technology is moving the politics. Can, can I just point to two things that I think are really important? One is, it I think people are disaffected because they can't see any big ideas and they don't see very much difference between the parties. But they are sure as hell motivated by single issues. And the single issues are better spread as a result of the internet than they were by the printed media, 
but I think radio and television are probably sort of in the middle there. But the internet, people emailing and texting each other has been a very, very powerful way of getting people to sign up on a single issue. And I think you, you need to take that on board because I think that's a new form of politics. The other thing is, one thing that I think, and it may be scary, but it's true, the other thing is that I think there is one thing that has sort of come out of the internet indirectly, and that's things like the microcredit movement. And the microcredit movement, in a funny kind of way, is modelled on the, 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 the email-type thinking. Uh, very small, you do little tiny bits, and it all adds up. And I think that it's worth thinking about people thinking economically as opposed to traditionally how we think politically to look at whether that's whether your point's completely true. I'm for medium-sized ideas. I don't like big ones. Um, my, 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 fam- my, my family's been chased across the world by people with big ideas. Can't have enough of that. And so... Um, <laughs> It may, it may be that the, the, the kind of um, moderating impact of, of the wisdom of crowds is actually the best idea that can come out of the internet. The fact that there is no single wisdom, but millions and millions of ideas. When I receive particularly stupid emails, I always uh, touch a copy of James Siriecki's book on the wisdom of crowds and remind myself this person is basically improving the average intelligence. <laughs> Even if their email is incredibly stupid. So that's what I suggest you do next time you get one of these things. The problem... The problem um, um, of course, with the with the crowd, the wisdom of crowds is that crowds can also be incredibly stupid because they have a herd effect. Um, and um, one of the, the good things about the internet is that it, precisely it may actually improve people's individuality. Uh, they may be able to express themselves individually and uh, follow each other less, uh, which would improve our collective wisdom. Anyone else on the panel? Well, I just, I just want to say that that's precisely the point. What I'm arguing is that. What the internet does is it facilitates the individual to express themselves to their satisfaction to produce things which look much better, which uh, appear much clearer. All I'm saying is whether, you know, I, I think it was Eric Schmidt who I heard say that the average number of readers of any one blog is one person. Um, and uh, that, that seems to me that, that my argument is that the diversity which I fully approve of uh, you know, which is a wonderful thing, and it's great that you know you can type in "fat pug dog lovers" and immediately you know there are forty-two thousand sites you can go and visit. But I, I, I just don't see this as amounting to something which is changing politics, changing political movements, and really, other than a passing aid, making it any easier for people to build the majorities and the large constituencies which, which they need to change things in politics. I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is a million people signed a petition on road pricing in Downing Street because it was easy, right? A million people going on the streets against the Iraq war wasn't so easy and I would argue was a much more significant political event. But they were recruited via the internet and text messages. Of course they were. They recruited because they felt strongly about the they war and they knew strongly, about it. But they felt strongly. But you know, you talk to all the young who were there. My kids were there. You talk to all the young who were there. How did they all know where they were all going to meet? Which cafe when they got fed up just tramping along? Well, that's a convenient. That's a convenience to do what you would have done anyway. I'm not saying it's not convenient. It's wonderful. It's just not changing things. And what about no poverty history? Some boxing gloves. <laughs> There's a question there. 
Hi, Polly Bennington from the Today programme. Just picking up on what Peter Bottomley said about the, the um, issue to do with mums for media, for example, do people identify that there still is basically a set of gatekeepers of the political agenda, be that Danny Finkelstein on Times Online, me and my colleagues at the Today programme, who decide what there is outside uh, on the internet that is deemed newsworthy to get onto the mainstream media? So, in effect the internet isn't necessarily affecting the political agenda as much as people might like. And linked to that, how much evidence do people have on the panel that the internet in, in itself is widening political engagement or is it rather deepening it amongst the demographic that is already interested? Good questions, Maureen. Who's going to have a crack? Rob? There is some evidence that it's uh, broadening um, and, uh, and deepening the people who will get, get involved in, in politics. We've been doing a, um, some evaluations of government's use of things like blogs and forums and, and web chats and, and even some of the more boring end of websites like the online surveys, but important nonetheless, they all make up the, 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 the suite of tools that are available uh, to government to engage, engage the public. And what we've seen across all the case studies, it's um, a common theme is about 70% of the people who are signing up to use these sites, whether they do or not use them in, in, in the end, are new to politics. They've never in, engaged in the political process before. And some of them um, would seem to be um, you know, the same sort of demographic, the, the middle-aged, the affluent males. But in many cases, they're, you know, they're, they're from a surprising range of, of ages, um, socioeconomic backgrounds, locations... I mean, in, for instance, DCLG forum on their local um, uh, government white paper, the um, people who were on there were local authority staff. You would imagine that they had, you know, fed into government consultations in the past. You know, as I say, but 70% of them nev never had before, and this is the first time taking part. Similarly with a, a DWP's online forum on, on welfare reform. I mean, these are people who are technically... Literate. They're online, they're regular, regular internet users, but that said, they have an interest in, this, in the policy areas. They want to talk to people with power, but it was that online mechanism that made them make that step forward for the first time. And I do think that the, the internet does have its limitations, and as we see mobile phones develop a lot more into you know, digital TV, and that becomes a bit more two-way as well, that you can, you know, you can the users can... The, uh, viewers can broadcast as much as they can be broadcast to um, that, that's going to open up a whole, a whole new area as well which should be very exciting I think the, uh, the real impact is going to be felt outside of more western countries like, like the UK I mean if you go to a place like Poland you know, democracy has only been in place for I mean, less than a generation so you now have the internet uh, come along and people are, people's first experience with democracy is, is from the start being informed by, by the internet. Their parents had no say in the government, and now if you, if you were to engage in uh, a discussion or read uh, onet.pl, one of the larger portals, you would, you would have an experience that's very similar to being here in the UK. And that's, that's really profound for what it can do and how it might shape uh, people's perceptions about democracy and about, about their government. Well, I think it's more basic, if I'm allowed to say something from the chair. I think it's uh, until we get speech recognition properly, uh, I have 28% of adult illiteracy in my constituency. How on earth am I going to get them online unless they can speak and it'll speak back? I think it's a technical problem. I mean, it, it's, it really is, because uh, when we started a sure start in Sheerness, 
We asked the mums to go and find Mother Mums. Jeremy Scott from Access Plus. Aside from the fact that the phone and the internet are not divorced from each other, they're one and the same thing in, in, in many ways in terms of communication. What worries me is that newspapers online are now just pages in a book and, okay, they have a, a little editor that's editing the page much in the same way as anyone edits their own blog. The editors on the net are the search engines and whilst I feel very pleased that Poland have the freedom to access all the pages, not everyone in the world is given that opportunity and there are, if certain new programmes are to be believed, you cannot get Tiananmen Square or the date of the massacre searching through Google in China. Um, that is an editorial decision by the service providers and by the search engines. And that seems to me a very serious and a power you know, far in excess of someone who owns three newspapers in the UK we're denying an entire country access to the truth and to its history. Looks like that's fine. So, um, so let, me, let me address China. The decision to enter China was one of the most difficult ones that I've been involved with while at the company. And um, you know, there are views within, the, within Google on all sides of the spectrum as to what the right answer was. But the choice that we had as is the choice of any government engaging with China or any business engaging with China, is do you engage or do you, do you choose engagement or do you choose estrangement? It's basically your options. Um, estrangement hasn't worked too well in Cuba. Uh, it doesn't, it's not a policy that tends to be that effective. So our view was that we wanted to engage. And then the question is, how do you engage in a place like China? Are you, better, are you more likely to, how are you most likely to affect change? Um, if you were to go to today to one of our competitors in China and search for Falun Gong or Tiananmen Square, you would get nothing, no results at all. So as a, as a Chinese user, you would assume that there's no information out there. If you were to go to google.cn, what we've done is you search, you will see the links to the sites that you can then go visit or you, that, that, are, that you cannot visit because they're dead. And you see a note in bold font that says these results have been uh, banned you, access to these results has been banned by your government. So the question is, is that better than where the Chinese citizens were before? It does two things. It tells them, first of all, the information exists, and it tells them if they're, if they're crafty, they can figure out a way around the firewall to get to it. And it tells them that their government is the one that's making the editorial decision to block it. So we think that's an incremental step forward from where they were. Now, it's not ideal, and it's still a very hard decision to, to make. Um, just more broadly on the editorial point, um, you know, uh, search engines are not, uh, Google at least, is not uh, an editor. Um, in a situation such as China, the choice is to be in the market and comply with law or to not be in the market. And, and where law says that we need to, to act in a certain way, we do. In Germany, if you were to search for Nazi paraphernalia, um, on Google, you, you don't get access to it. You go to a site that says this is prohibited by your government. So I don't think that the search engines are being an editor any more than uh, complying, with, complying with the law. Do you want to come back on that? They are an editor. They've just got a different proprietor telling them what to allow access to and what to put in the paper. You know, the proprietor is the German government, the proprietor is the Chinese government saying, 
no, you can't put that in the paper. It's not agreeing with with what I want people to see. I appreciate that you do say that the sites exist in, in, in China and, and maybe that's a step in the right direction. As wealth grows, I'd like to see search engines recognising their own power and actually refusing to kowtow. Your choice is, I mean, the, the choice is then to not be in the market. And again, what our view was it was better to engage and to make incremental progress and to be active in the, in the, in, in the market as opposed to, as opposed to what's, what was going on before. Hi, Hugo Rifkind. We've talked a lot about access and opportunity to, uh, opportunity to, to access information and to get to information. What about people who don't care about politics and aren't interested? Isn't there a danger that the more, uh, the more political debate and political information shifts online, we move towards something that you actually have to go and look for and you have to sign up for it, as opposed to getting your political understanding of the world before the football comes on? or in the page, next to the page you'd normally read in the newspaper. If everything moves to an area where we have to go hunting for it, doesn't that mean we're alienating vast amounts of people who just aren't going to bother? That's what you described as the print media, where people have a wide choice of things that they can pursue in books or magazines, and they have to go and find it. Now, what you appear to be holding up as your ideal paradigm uh, is you know, when the BBC had a monopoly and uh, it was possible because there was only one uh, television channel as uh, Tony Hall, one of the ex-bosses of the BBC once put it, to make people eat their greens in other words you could put on a popular programme and you put the news or play for today on afterwards and you got an audience of 30%, 40%, 50%, 60% of the population. The moment that you have a pluralistic media or a fragmented media, uh, your potential uh, to do that goes away. Now, you know, you just have the trade-off of whether you think, you believe that there's always going to be a benevolent authority uh, if you have a monoculture of information provision uh, which is going to force people to do things that are good for them or whether you're rather frightened by the idea of having uh, a big brother uh, controlling all the available information and, and certainly as someone who based that work in a niche market I think the plurality is there but uh, and really this is the point that I was trying to make in my opening remarks and, and Derek's picked up on it talking about adult illiteracy you have to work out then if people have the choice but you can't force them to c- consume it and you think it is a net public good, what is the solution? And the only solution, it seems to me, is education, is ensuring that people are empowered to seek out that information uh, in, in education and, and, and that as many people as possible have access to education. Now, to be fair to the politicians, I think you know, they are onto that, although they realise they haven't... Uh, Necessarily solved everything. Ross, um, I think it's going to have to be part of a mixed economy, isn't it? I mean, you, you can't just have you know politics going going online because you know it, it helps with um, logistical barriers that you know it makes it easier. And then you know ministers don't need to go outside the office and they can do everything via video conference. I mean, that that's, that surely can't be the the, the lesson to, to learn from this. It's got to. You know, hopefully the people that can be engaged online can be encouraged to, to engage offline as well and, and those people that, that can engage via, via the conventional sort of boring uh, routes, if you like, the blindness, they can be encouraged to go online. But it does give people 
clearly more more opportunities, surely to you know if if politics goes online as well, more opportunities to get more information, more opportunities to to participate. This is an, an ideal world, maybe not as it is just now, and um, obviously it also allows them to organise to hold politicians to account as well. I mean, it's a, it's a great a great enabler, and I think it should be welcome. But it's definitely not a replacement of of politics as or the routes that we have available to us now. Well, we're assuming that, that people um, not educated, therefore they don't watch the news, but maybe they've stopped watching the news because they are educated. The, the, uh, I make that slightly facetious point um, because we're assuming that, um, that the engagement with politics is both um, desirable for the individual and desirable for everything else, and that's actually everyone else, and that's actually quite a big leap. Um, I'm not sure that I want to live particularly in an incredibly activist society. And it was always said of, Tony Crosland always used to say of the the socialists who promoted industrial democracy, that um, he didn't think it would work in a country where everyone was busy tending their gardens. And and actually, there's a lot to be said for this country where, um, I think probably I said about my family being chased across the world, I think one of the reasons we ended up here is because everyone's busy gardening. Um, And um, they'll leave leave us alone, thank you. Uh, So I I would argue that... um, not being involved with politics can be a fairly rational decision, that it's caused a lot by the fact that we live in a fairly prosperous, stable country, that yes, there has been some disillusion, but one of the reasons why uh, political participation has dropped during the Tony Blair era is because he's uh, successfully uh, presided over an era of moderate stability. And um, people's response to that, quite naturally, is to feel that they'd be wasting their time uh, being incredibly actively involved, as well as a certain degree of disillusion with uh, conventional political parties. And I also think that engagement isn't necessarily a good idea for the rest of us. So this idea that we've got that in the best of all worlds, everyone would be engaged in politics through the internet, well, I think it's something we ought to pause about for a few seconds. Do you know? I was very going to say partly something that Danny said. Is it the best thing that we actually want everybody to be engaged through the internet? But what, I mean, I think that people are just bored by quite a lot of conventional politics. They're just not interested. The idea that if you, you know, that they don't read... Um, because, you know, they're looking for the sport, so they've got the news there, so they'll have to read it. They don't. It's like people have television on in the background and they don't bother to concentrate till it's the bit they want to concentrate on. So I don't think you can force people. I think we haven't really honed in on the single-issue thing. That's where I think the internet is quite powerful, because I think it it gets an idea going and then people latch onto it, and I think there's something quite important about that changing part of the politics, and then the politicians have to respond. That's what they're not terribly keen on, but, and, you know, I speak as partly as one, but, you know, not necessarily keen on it, because it can be very awkward, but you suddenly realise there's a movement growing, and it is being spread by the, by the internet and by mobile phone, and you've got to do something about it. We've got so many people who want to speak. There's one here, there's two here, and there's one there. I just want to ask about engagement. I mean, you're talking about people engaging with politics. I was just wondering about politicians engaging with people. I mean, isn't there a bit of a tendency for politicians that are getting involved with the internet to only be talking to their own constituency? Neil Stewart from Policy Review TV, Audience 200. Um, I think one of the interesting things about the internet is going to be when it, uh, it, what's really going on behind it is uh, database collection. Um, it's not the internet that delivers huge campaigns about tail docking or anything else. It's because somebody has collected a database that it can then mobilize. And the collection of that data, the cookies, the knowledge about more and more minute subsex segments in which we live, right down to the point where people can profile us and invade our privacy, 
which is one issue, but also provide us with fantastic uh, you know, niche holidays and goods and products. But it's, it's the collection of data behind the internet that is the big facilitator. None of the single issue campaigns would be any use if all they did was post a single thing on YouTube. They'd have to be lucky and Adam would have to report it. They're powerful because they've been collecting data and they've been using other aspects. And that is where some of the power and danger is. And that's where the political parties are going. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton didn't launch on the internet because she could technically do it. I mean, my eight-year-old can technically do it. And, you know, his attempts to run for president have not so far been successful. Um, however, she had the database. That's why uh, Royale has 45 people behind it. It's the machine. And that's what politics has to watch out for. Everybody's trying to build new machines to connect with this much faster form of communication, to segment it, to get it right down to the point where you think, as Alex Salmon said in the Scottish elections, that Alex Salmon thinks he can win the Scottish elections on 16,000 votes because he knows where they live in which constituencies. And all the parties are preparing for the next election because they think they know where the, what, Danny might know, 160,000 votes are in the key swing. And what they do, do they buy pampers? How old are they? Do they park? What do they drink? You know, what are their sentiments? And that is the power when it connects with the fast communication. Julia? I think that there is a difference between activism and ordinaryism engaging in politics. I think that campaigns like Marina Hertz's May Day for Nurses, which has garnered 14,000 signatures in about two weeks from people supporting her campaign for celebrities and anybody with the wherewithal to donate a day's pay, to shock the government into supporting the nurses, I think one in seven of whom are uh, either underpaid or not in... Uh, not. That's where the internet's really good. It engages people quickly. And I think, Adam, you were right to say that it's a different kind of mobilisation to get a million people marching on Hyde Park. But actually, it was pretty significant that a million people signed up online about the uh, road pricing. And it had the government running around in my view, rightly, quite frantically as a result. But I still don't think that politics is very sexy online. I mean, I think the collapse of the Tories' A-list shows this, that what was happening is that in the ordinary constituency voting committees or whatever happens with Tories when they're being selected to stand, it was about, you know, the powerful and the meek and the people with the right contacts got selected and it was nothing to do with the internet. And the other point I wanted to make was about exhaustion and overload, which is... The celebrities are discovering that it's all very well being modern and having blogs and things, but as Lindsay Lohan admitted, she hasn't updated her blog since 2005. You know, how much overload is there going to be if really every MP has to sort of sing and dance all the time? And surely this is why Sean Simon went up onto YouTube, is because you've got to get visual, and if you've got to get visual, you've got to get into entertainment, and if you've got to get entertainment, you've got to sort of dumb down. I know there's still more people with hands up. Don't worry, I've got you spotted. Anita Bennett, Taylor Bennett. Uh, I think what we've heard this evening is the <coughs> power of the single issue. And I wonder whether the panel would like to comment on the impact on politics shifting from perhaps more national politics to the emphasis on local politics and the pressure that this puts on local MPs and whether that has a, a bearing on the shape of politics to come. Well, I'll just say one thing which relates to single issues. What we haven't talked about is money. 
And again, if you look at the American model, the Democrats, Terry McAuliffe, reconstructed the Democratic Party largely using the Internet by uh, targeting individuals, small donors, $10, $20 a time, and and them giving it on a monthly basis. And that was uh, a a key development. And we haven't, uh, because of all the traditions and the problems of... uh, party financing uh, in this country um, yet got any sort of system equivalent to that and I think that's one way in which potentially the internet could make a difference although I also think that there is a whole problem about content on the internet as uh, Google knows very well with the legal suits which it's now facing and as, the, as it becomes more of a standard means of communication uh, content providers are going to be looking uh, to monetize uh, that content uh, in a way they haven't so far, and that may actually mean that quite a lot of the information that we think of as being free and out there uh, doesn't become, uh, it doesn't remain uh, free and out there. Uh, and certainly, Google has one model through advertising of how people make money, which means that this idea you have of an open world connecting up may become a bit more like uh, the experience. Uh, which you have in China. And just on this final point, I mean, we, we talked about single issues, single issue politics, but where single issue politics is effective is where it connects up with mainstream politics, when it persuades a party a map for one reason or another to adopt that cause. The classic example is the, uh, the morphing of I-4 on the hunting issue to give Labour a million pounds, which then became an unbreakable manifesto commitment and, and whatever, but there are lots, lots of others. So again, it's, that is the point to me where the long tail which permits these thousand flowers to bloom actually connects with the mass movement, which I think is democratic politics, and I disagree with Danny. I feel that that model of democratic politics, some sort of majoritarianism, uh, is going to prevail because I can't really see uh, a credible alternative system, particularly if everyone's in their garden. The fact that you can't see a credible system doesn't mean that, you know, just because it doesn't work doesn't mean it won't happen. But I'm not arguing necessarily that all the consequences of this internet change are beneficial or that they lead to an easy governing form, but I, that doesn't mean that they aren't the direction in which politics is going. You know, I was very interested in what Neil had to say about the 160,000 people. Um, the only thing I would reply to that is the first time I was told that was by a database company trying to sell William Hayes <laughs> and me a database. Um, uh, eventually the Tories did buy a database and I now work for the Times rather than being a member of Parliament. Um, so um, that's probably my comment on that. In other words, I do think um, you know, at the least at the moment that political parties do still uh, require um, mass political messages. The question is how long that is that uh, going to go on? So I, if I were Alex Salmon, I wouldn't rely on it in this election, but he's certainly correct about the uh, long-term trend. But on this point about single issues, I, I think that, um, that single-issue politics is, can be quite dangerous uh, because it doesn't basically think about balances between uh, parties and a lot of people who are online uh, are unhealthily obsessive about things um, and, it can, and it could be that one of the impacts on political parties will be that the, um, the long tail as it were drags the centre uh, with it and I think all those things are dangers but it doesn't mean to say I don't think they're going to happen or that anyone can really necessarily prevent them, I just make an observation I think that's what's likely to happen Ross? Um, a couple of really interesting points raised, raised from the floor. I think that, on, just to go 
uh, onto something that we said before we went for that last round of questions about what motivates and demotivates people to engage in politics. Well, I think that we, we need to be careful about, you know, let's cast some observations, some anecdotes about that, but let's also interrogate the data that we have. And the data that we do have, for anybody who's interested, the audit of political engagement produced by Hansard Society and the Electoral Commission, a quick plug. But interestingly in that, what it, what it shows is that 69% of uh, British public do want to get actively involved in politics, but the things that are stopping them do it. One, only 39% of them actually feel that they've got sufficient skills and knowledge to actually do it, and only 33% of them actually feel that when they get involved that something happens as a result of it. So efficacy is low and skills and knowledge are low, and th those, are, those are barriers, so definitely education is, is very important. And on single issues, I agree that issues never exist in isolation. And it would be interesting to see Parliament do a sort of Amazon, and so that if you go to Parliament to look up this particular single issue that you're interested in, it also suggests to you, well, here's, here's other people who have searched for this have also looked for this issue or engaged with this committee, and that would feed people on. It's that peer-to-peer -peer review and making use of, the, use of the technology to push people on to other areas, some of which might be offline, some of which might be online. But it would just make for a more rich, more critical and deliberative process. Polly, do you want to come back? The first part of my initial question wasn't responded to by anybody on the panel, which is a pity, and it's come up again in relation to the single issue thing, and particularly the, the examples that Julia gave. 14,000 people within two weeks signing up to Norina Hertz's idea. Well, I know one of the reasons why they will have done that is because we had an interview on our programme about it. We still have to make a decision about whether Norina Hertz's idea is worthy of us giving three and a half minutes to it. The other one, the road pricing petition, the whole of the media went bonkers about it. Now, I know I've stood in drafty shadow of the Treasury on the other side of Downing Street for years filming people coming up and dumping boxes of petitions in front of Downing Street and knowing that no one will want it apart from the regional television programme of the person who actually happens to be on the doorstep. We ignored those petitions for years. We got overexcited about an e-petition, partly because of numbers, but not only because of numbers, and we have to take into account the fact that those numbers are easier to collect online than they ever were when you were standing outside a drafty town hall for months on end. So that means that the media st still arguably is the gatekeeper of what is considered important in mainstream politics. And is that going to continue, or is that stranglehold going to be broken. I can't see how that gatekeeper role is going to be broken in the near future. I think it's the combination. That's why I think the single issue thing is so important. That's why I love, I love the Amazon idea. I love that, you know, and if you're interested in this, you might think about that and that as well, because it is much easier to get the, all the so signatures. They're rubbish, aren't they? Well, you're quite, well, <laughs> well, they're not, actually, no. Actually, that's not true because recently doing some research for a book, I found a book I'd never heard of doing the Amazon thing. So I, I can, not often, but it can work. But I think it's the combination of it being much easier to get the signatures, the involvement online because you can get people signed up to a campaign quite quickly online and the media saying, we'll run with this one. And that actually, it's, it's very powerful, but it's also extremely dangerous. And I want to pick up what Neil was saying as well, because I think this thing about the, the database and, you know, the, the people who, you know, if you like, are helping to get the signatures together are collecting the database. I don't think they're as crafty as they think they are quite yet, but they're certainly going there because they're segmenting it more and more and more. And I think ultimately it will be easier for them to persuade the gatekeepers to run with something because they'll say, you know who these people are who are really interested in this one? Polly, I think it's uh, 
another area too. I, I think why can't why can't we have a hundred thousand signatures, and why can't those people demand a debate in the house? Why can't they be in the debate in the house? And why can't they join? I mean, I just think we're just you know we just think we have this place, but you're not allowed to participate. It's mad, but uh, that's a personal view. That's sir. Navarra, uh, Times Online. This is more of a sort of comment, and it's just sort of adding a bit of information to this current debate. Um, and that is in terms of how the media will be affected by the web and its news agenda. Uh, one of the things that we've noticed, or one of the things that we use, um, to fine-tune and to possibly help organise our editorial judgments, but we still use our journalistic skills, is to look at uh, responses from uh, search engines and those people using our search engines. So, for example, the interesting thing we noticed was that on the day of the budget and the day after, the most commonly searched term was stamp duty, even though the Chancellor actually had nothing to say about stamp duty. And so on online, we thought, well, people clearly are interested in stamp duty, and so we did run some, some copy on you know, what the Chancellor could have done with stamp duty and what he chose not to do. So I think we'll find that, and following on from the point that was made over there, as we gain this information and data and we get it, what we have to do is interpret it, understand it, and then also use, use it, but not forgetting that we have journalistic judgment to make as well. Listen, I sense it could be time for a drink. <laughs> I've got a little bit of something on YouTube I thought we could finish with, as it's the end of term. It's a rather funny piece of work. By taking the tough decisions, tough long-term decisions, Punch and Judy... The Punch and Judy politics. You should dig up the archive on Desert Island Discs. Cameron copied all of Tony's choices, except for the Foo Fighters track. Values don't change, but times do. That is the change that I'm talking about. We can change, we can change public services. Public services, education. Education. Specialist schools. Special schools. In China and India. India and China, eight years, eight years. Aspirations, aspiration and courage. Courage, million, million, fringe, fringe, never, never. Change, 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 change again, again. In turn, turn, but times, times, time, time, change, 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 changing, 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 change is marching on again. That's got to change. Change makers. Changes turn and face the strain. Changes. I don't want to be a rich man. Changes turn and face the strain. Changes. It's going to have to be a different man. Time may change me. But I can't chase time. There we are. Listen, can I on your behalf? Thank the panel and thank you all for coming. <laughs>